Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, if you have them with you. If not, there are pews, uh, Bibles in front of you. Feel free to turn as we take a few minutes and return our attention from where we were yesterday morning. So I've been going through Matthew chapters 1 and 2, and yesterday giving our attention to the visit of the wise men. At first, seeing their entry into the city of Jerusalem, the difficult reaction that was uh, created as a result of all of these. Uh, If you were not with us yesterday, I I believe that there were far more than just three people that showed up. Uh, There could have been well over a hundred that the, the visit of these wise men would have been terrifying to the city of Jerusalem that in fact could have been concerns about a regime change, and that's why they are there. Uh, So this is their concern. So all of Jerusalem is in a turmoil. Herod, for sure, is in turmoil as they ask him where this king of the Jews has been born, to which Herod is certainly thinking, uh, you're looking at him. But Matthew is intentional to show to us, Herod is no king. God has sent his own king, a forever king. And that is what is described for us then in the visit of the wise men. And so we noted that prophetic pronouncement that was made that out of Bethlehem would come a ruler who would shepherd the people. Beginning in verse 7, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you found him, Bring back word to me, that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they'd come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. When they'd opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. I think it goes without argument that the biggest obsession that we have, especially our culture, at the Christmas season is the getting and the giving of gifts. That for sure, I think, is the central focus for a lot of folks. I mean, we might say, no, that's not why we do this. We do it for family, and we do it for, you know, to remember the season. But let's be honest, we spend a lot of time, we spend a lot of money, and we spend a lot of resources buying stuff, and giving stuff. It's just a part of the season. I think you could argue that Thanksgiving is really nothing more now than a prelude to the opening weekend of the shopping season, right? I hear much more about Black Friday in the weeks leading up to Thanksgiving than I hear about Thanksgiving. And in fact, if you ever do hear Thanksgiving, it is in regard to whether or not your favorite store is going to be open on Thanksgiving night. 
So we have pre-Black Friday, we have Black Friday. Then we have Cyber Monday. Then we have Porch Pirate Wednesday, right? When they come and steal all the stuff that you got from Amazon in just two days. You know, it's, it's, it's estimated that this year the average American household will spend just over $1,000. That translates to $720 billion, billion dollars. Now, that number could be skewed by some, say, a certain pastor who gave his wife a $200,000 Lamborghini SUV. Ruined the surprise for Becca once again. Man, can't... I can't believe it. It's outside, big bow, right? It's a true story, by the way, if you haven't kept up with the news. That is absolutely true. A pastor in South Carolina did that. Now, you may be concerned in hearing this. You may think, oh man, this pastor has got a room full of people, and so now he's going to go on a diatribe against materialism. He's got a group here, one of the biggest crowds of the year, and man, he's going to let them have it. And a few of you are thinking, yes, both barrels preacher. All right, this is why I brought my family with me. All right, that's what some of you are thinking tonight. Is that what he's going to do? Well, no. I mean, obviously, on one hand, the giving and getting of gifts may say something about our materialism, right? may say something about our unbridled consumerism. We also know there's another side to the getting and giving of gifts. Well, we know there's a more intimate side, right? There's a more thoughtful side. There's an attempt to do these gifts in such a way so that it communicates to the person what you think about them. It's a way to say something, right? It's it's a way to do something special for somebody as a way to say, I care, I love you, I think something of you. And in one sense, this is really fitting during the Christmas season, because what we just read, one of the iconic stories of the Christmas season is, in fact, the first time Christmas gifts were given, right, surrounding the Christmas story. Though we know that this event did not happen on the night of His birth, Nonetheless, Matthew includes the stories of the wise men who probably come right around 18 months to two years after Jesus had been born as, as, an, as an inclusion into the whole birth of Jesus narratives. We've noted all December, if you've been with us on Sunday mornings, what Matthew is doing is really intentional. He is demonstrating that Jesus Christ is the rightful king. He is the forever king on a forever throne, ruling over a forever kingdom. That's put in contrast to the usurper Herod, and and there's probably no better illustration of this than these wise men, pagan religious leaders from Persia who come all the way not to give honor and respect to Herod, They come assuming everybody in Jerusalem is abuzz about the birth of this new king. They were not. Matthew is going to demonstrate through these men, in fact, Jesus is rightfully called the king. And we've noted he is a king who reigns, he is a king who saves, he is a king who shepherds. Tonight, though, I want to take just a minute as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper, as we look forward then to a time of of candlelight as an important Christmas tradition in, in churches and has been for many years. This last part of the story of the wise men does something else. 
It zeroes our attention in on the fact that not only do we have this king who reigns, do we have this king who saves and this king who shepherds, but I think Matthew is also demonstrating through these men, and in particular through this act, through them giving these gifts, I think he is demonstrating Jesus Christ as the king is worthy of our worship and the worship of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Think think about a couple of those ideas. First, I I think this story absolutely illustrates that Jesus is worthy of our worship. Now, what I just read is important because what what happened here in this event, this is not the normal way you would necessarily approach a king. That is not to say you wouldn't approach with reverence and respect, but notice what these men do not do. These men don't just merely bow, right? They don't even just take a knee. Did you hear what the text said? It said in verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. Again, it wasn't just some nod in courtesy. It wasn't even getting on their knees. The language means they fell down on their faces before a two-year-old. No offense to the two-year-olds who may be in the room, all right? You probably have a lot of parents who drop to their faces in front of you for other reasons, okay? But imagine that, imagine that scene. This is something more. And again, the text is specific. They didn't fall down out of fright. They didn't even fall down out of some kind of respectful reverence. They are engaged in worship. It is is an act of subservience. It it is a submissive act. Again, keep in mind, these are seriously wealthy, seriously powerful, seriously influential men from the East. Their power and influence could have rivaled the king of Persia itself. And what are they doing? But with their entire selves yielding to Jesus Christ. It's a profound image. By the way, I do want to point out something very specific. You'll note that the text does say they fall down and they worship who? They worship Him. They worship Him. And when it says that they give gifts, it says that they give gifts to Him. All right? It's very intentional here. Who gets top billing? Whose name is always mentioned first? It's always the child. It, it, it is Jesus that is the focus and the center of, of this reaction. They fall before Him. I mean, think about that. Gentiles, pagans, worshiping this child based on nothing but a star they saw in the east and what I would assume was a knowledge of the Old Testament. They know this, this is the child of promise. Not some regional king. This is the child of promise. And then, of course, we have them giving gifts. You want to talk about gifts that make a point. Again, notice you're familiar with them, right? We've heard this. It's part of our songs it's, it's always a part of, of our little nativity scenes, especially whenever you, know, whenever you see them, whether it's adults doing them or 
you know, our favorites is to see the little children doing the little nativity scenes, right? Their little shepherds' costumes, and they put on their little kings, even though they weren't kings, but they, they put on, you know, those wise men costumes. Each of them usually has a pillow that has like a box on it, right? The Bible never says that, all right? We don't have any idea how they brought it. And again, were there three of them? Maybe. Were there 50 of them? Maybe. There's more than one because it's a plural word. That's all we know. But we do know the gifts they give. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These are gifts that are worthy of a king. These are expensive gifts. These are all precious materials. They all have significance. And, and, and really, the, the, the first and foremost being, this is what you give to a king. So they're bowing before him, they fall on their faces before him, and now they are giving him tribute. They are bringing him kingly gifts as a way to recognize his position, his stature. I mean, think about that. Along with the act of worship, they are giving him stuff. That is a profound act of worship, to give him stuff. It also is practical. I'm sure you know the story, what's going to happen after this, when they're going to find out that Herod does not want to worship Jesus. Instead, Herod wants to kill Jesus. They find out about that and they go a different way, and Joseph and Mary, they are also warned in a dream. So what do they do? They flee to Egypt. Now, I don't know what it costs to travel back in the day, but my guess is back in that day it was just as expensive as it is now. Where do relatively poor... People of no means, living in a little nothing town like Bethlehem, where do they find the resources to go all the way from Bethlehem to Egypt? Well, lo and behold, it just so happens that some guys from, the, from India show up and they give them gold, frankincense, and myrrh. How about that? All of which would have been extremely valuable and all of which were undoubtedly used in order to get them to Egypt. Again, you see God's sovereign hand, by the way, orchestrating events to ensure that His plan is brought to pass. But there's more than that. I think these gifts, I think they have spiritual significance. Both gold and frankincense were used in the temple. I mean, most of the temple was plated in the stuff. Most of the items that were used in worship were plated in gold. It's hard to miss that image of divinity in the gold. Frankincense was burned in the temple. It was a sign of the presence of God among the people. It was also a sign of the prayers of the people going up before God. What was it that Jesus was called? Emmanuel, right? God with us. The most striking one was myrrh. Myrrh was an expensive perfume, and it would have been used in a variety of contexts. And it was used to anoint a dead body for burial. In fact, it was also used, combined with liquid, to be a type of anesthesia of sorts, a way to dull pain. And it was given to Jesus while He was hanging on the cross. Now, did these wise men have any idea what they were doing? Certainly not. 
I don't think for a minute that they would have had that kind of theological intuition that they would have seen this. But looking back, how can we miss this? Already from the very beginning of his life, they're offering him gifts that in essence say, this is the one who is the king of the temple itself. This is the one for whom the temple was built. This is the one who is worthy of all the worship and praise that comes out of the temple. And yet at the same time, giving us a foreshadowing that this same one, this God-man, this king, before whom Gentiles fell in worship, is going to be the same king who 33 years later, 31 years later, is going to be hanging on a cross. He's going to be bearing in his body the wrath against sin that we have committed. He's going to shed blood to the point of death for sins he never committed so that those who by faith trust in Him and Him alone can have the righteousness of Christ transferred from Jesus to them. All this foreshadowed in something as simple as a gift that was given. It reminds us the nature of the birth of this child is not normal, and the nature of this kingship is not typical. As we've already said, He is a king who does reign, but He's also a king who's come to save the people from their sins. And how does He do that? By being the one who would take God's wrath for the sins of those who would believe. So so we see, again, a profound image in the fact that these men offer such worship to Him. By the way, I would also draw our attention to what I think is an interesting feature of the text, really all of the stories. Have you noticed how all of the characters have a particular reaction to Jesus? So you have Mary and Joseph, they react in faith and trust. You have the shepherds, they react in obedience and evangelism. They go and tell what they had heard and they'd seen. We have the wise men who react in worship and, and, and adoration to the king who's been given to us by God. But then we have guys like the scribes. They were earlier in the story. These are the guys that Herod asked, where is this king going to be born? And, and, the, and the scribes just kind of indifferently say, in essence, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And their reaction to Jesus was one of indifference. Then you have Herod. Herod's was nothing but unadulterated hatred. I wonder if there aren't more of those in the world today. In our country, for sure. There are Herods all around. There are those who absolutely hate Jesus, hate the name of Jesus, don't even want the name of Jesus in any public space. It, 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 it brings in them, it rises anger up in them. But I'll be honest, I'm far more concerned about those who sit in the pews, who may be like the scribes. They're just indifferent. Oh, oh! it's great to get together on church and sing some songs, talk about Jesus every now and then, and, and I feel good about that, and it's great to come on, you know, on Christmas Eve, and what a great service, and, and what a great way to then to think about the season. But, but in, 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 in reality, in, in terms of day-to-day life, is my life really lived in such a way that recognizes the one that we are talking about here tonight is not only the one who died and rose from the dead, but is the king who reigns over all things, the one For whom, that when His name is uttered, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I wonder, as we live our day-to-day lives, is our reaction to Him one of faith and trust and worship and obedience? Or is it just kind of different? 
He's good when I need him. But he better not ask too much of me. I mean, I want him there at the end. But I want to kind of do my own things now. I don't know what you expected coming here tonight, but I, I, will, I will tell you I would not be doing what I've been called to do if I do not challenge us to think more carefully that this, this is not just some sweet nostalgic moment. This is an opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is an opportunity then for all, whether you are here and you are not a believer and you've never trusted in Christ, you've never submitted to the one who died and rose from the dead, I would implore you to do just that. He is the king of the universe and one day you will bow. You will fall before him one day. I would do that now. Because if you do it later, it may be then a prelude to judgment. Of course, as believers, what what is your reaction to this Savior? What is your relationship to this one who is worthy of our worship and our praise? And I honestly say that my life is lived in submission to that. By the way, I would note here, the very fact that there are Gentiles are the ones who are doing this demonstrates Jesus is not some regional story for some particular time in history nearly 2,000 years ago. The fact that wise men, pagans from a foreign land, come and worship Him reminds us of a theme that's tracked from Genesis to Revelation, and that is that God is the God of the nations, and Jesus is the Savior for every tribe, tongue, and nation. He is a global king. He is a universal king. He is an eternal king. Have you submitted to him as your king? Now, the story of the wise men is profound. It's the very essence of Christmas, demonstrating who this king is and his right to be worshipped. And so now we turn our attention to an act of worship, one that is central to the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ, one commanded by the Lord himself. One that I think is fitting for a a Christmas season. Fitting because it forces us to look beyond a manger and swaddling clothes and and, and, and and a young bride and her husband and a starry night shepherds. Forces us to see that the purpose of this child, again, was to be a sacrifice as we as we take of the the bread, we are reminded that this body was broken because we're broken. It was sacrificed because of our sin. We are reminded as we will drink this cup, this cup that represents the blood of Christ, that as we drink this cup, Jesus drank the cup of the wrath of God. And that in drinking this cup, we are saying we don't have to. This blood that was shed to the point of death, so that we might have our sins forgiven. What an opportunity then to worship our King as we remember what He has done for us. So at this time, I would ask the deacons, if you would make your way forward, those who are going to be serving us the elements tonight. I would also, again, extend the invitation to all who are here that you would worship with us as we take of these elements together. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, have confessed Him as the one crucified and resurrected, if you are in good standing with His church, then we welcome you at this table with us, that you would take these elements with us as an act of worship for our
great King. Let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you for the opportunity we have now to take of these elements, and we pray, God, that as we do so, we would be mindful that the birth of this child was more than, than just an interesting story of history. It is the means by which you make it possible to have the sin of Adam, the curse of Adam, reversed. That which was lost in the garden can be restored in Jesus Christ. And may this be an opportunity to draw our hearts unto you and unto our Savior in worship and to fall on our face before a great and mighty King. So, Father, be honored by what we offer to you as we remember what Christ has done for us. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.